Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello everyone. And welcome to the History of England, episode 129, Dominion and Destruction. Once upon a time, but not for many weeks, I've recommended an audiobook, courtesy of Audible. I can recommend Audible from personal experience. It's so much more affordable than CDs and there's just this massive range. And you can get a free audiobook on a 30-day trial or discounted membership when you follow the link from my website, thehistoryofengland.com. I thought I could recommend an old classic that I thoroughly enjoyed in my youth, my salad days, my days of yore. The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco. It's wonderfully evocative of its time in a medieval monastery and a thoroughly good murder mystery to boot. The film with Sean Connery, that's great too. So, in 1397, Richard freed himself of the shackles of Parliament and the Permanent Council and revenged himself on the men who had humiliated him so badly all those years ago. But he didn't free himself from his own fears and terrors, and in fact his behaviour has led historians to speculate that he may actually have gone mad. Actually, it's probably not quite as extreme as that, but it's very doubtful that the revenge he visited on his enemies made him any happier in practice. But why do I make this outrageously speculative statement about him going mad? Well, let me tell you about the Cheshire Archers. You'll remember from last week the Cheshire Archers that ringed Parliament. Richard had a connection with the area that came through his father, the Black Prince. He visited the area. He retained men into his affinity there. And the Cheshire Archers became a permanent feature of his reign. A corps of them became a notorious bodyguard of 300 divided into the Vigilia, or watches. There was an additional reserve that could be called up at any time. It was essentially a private army, and a private army which was on terms of remarkable intimacy. There's a quote that survives from one of the commanders to the aloof and distant king that goes, Dickon sleep securely while we wake, and dread nothing while we live to guard you. 
a bit creepy. It was a private army that made Richard think that at least somebody loved him. Because pretty soon, no one else did. Richard was massively unpopular in London. In 1392, he'd stripped the city of its privileges for a while and forced loans on them. And now Richard started to wander around the country with his private army and his archers instilled terror everywhere he went. As he travelled in His Majesty, the signs of his insecurity went with him as he forced the local gentry to come forward and swear pledges of allegiance. Richard was clearly afraid of his people. But actually it wasn't the ordinary people he needed to worry about. It was the magnates that he should have been watching. Richard began to politicise local government in a way that had not been an issue since Henry III, appointing his own men as sheriff, letting them stay for two or three years rather than the agreed annual turnover. And Richard's court and regime looked very much like the Tudor regime, a world dominated by power at the centre, by politics at court and courtiers, rather than the diffuse regional medieval world. There's a deeply unhealthy feel about it all, the king surrounded by sycophants dependent on his power, rather than men of independent views and public service. The Wilton Diptych we talked about a lifetime ago was produced at this time, reflecting Richard's obsession with his majesty and destiny, an appointment to reign by God. And when I say appointed by God, I mean appointed by God. How much I mean appointed by God. Richard came to see those who opposed him as being offenders against the Lord, not just him. In a letter to Albert of Holland, Richard described those who opposed him as contriving wickedness against King Christ and his Lord. Richard buttressed this by the traditional reference point for royal power, Roman law. This led him to an obsession with two concepts. Firstly, that his subjects had a binding obligation to obey him in all matters, no matter what. And secondly, that he, Richard, had an obligation to establish peace in his kingdom. The idea of the king's peace was, of course, not a new one. We can go back to the Vikings and Anglo-Saxons to show the concept of the king's peace. But for Richard, it was the peace of the grave, the peace of submission. Here's part of a letter Richard wrote to the Byzantine emperor, Michael Paleologus, in 1398. Some of our magnates have made many attempts on the prerogative, have wickedly directed their malevolence even against our person. Wherefore we collected the might of our prowess, and stretched forth our arm against those our enemies, and at length we have by our own valour trodden on the necks of the proud and haughty, and with a strong hand we have ground them down, not to the bark only, but even to the root, and have restored to the subject peace, which by God's blessing shall endure for ever. Almost inevitably, money also came into all of this, with forced loans to cover the growing expenses of the king's household. But really the main point is that you have a paranoid king wandering around with a private army, demanding unquestioning obedience. And once the king's shown himself capable of cancelling royal pardons, well, where do you go from there? Nobody's safe. Now then, before we go on, a word of warning. Most of what happens next is according to the word of one Henry Bolingbroke. It is the depths of winter, December 1397. Henry Bolingbroke, now styled Duke of Hereford, 
and his retinue were travelling near London, when ahead of them coming towards him in great haste and agitation was a similar revenue of another great magnate, Thomas Mowbray, one time Earl of Nottingham and Captain of Calais. Mowbray and Bolingbroke had a connection, whether they liked it or not. As the two junior appellants, they were both in the deeply, deeply uncomfortable position where they had apparently been pardoned and indeed rewarded for their treachery towards their fellow senior appellants. But Richard had shown that he didn't forgive and forget easily. There is no doubt they both felt exposed. In the word of Woody, this was the perfect time to panic. So we have another opportunity for a little bit of dialogue. Mowbray is played by Mr Henry and Bolingbroke by Mr David. Please note that the Earl of Gloucester referred to here is not the dead Thomas, it's a new creation. The Dispenser family is back, after the Parliament we've just had. He won't have much time to get used to the title, the lad, unfortunately. We are about to be undone. Why? Because of what was done at Radcot Bridge. The King has given us a pardon, and declared his will to uphold that pardon in Parliament. He even said we'd been true and loyal to him. He will do with us what he has done to the others. He wants to wipe clean any trace of our opposition. It will be a great wonder if the King went back on what he'd said in Parliament. It is a wondrous world indeed, and a false one. It is a false world indeed, for I know well that, had several of us not taken action, you and your father would have been murdered on the way to Windsor after Parliament. But Edward, Duke of Omal, John Holland, Thomas Percy, and I all swore that we would never agree to destroy a lord without just and reasonable cause. The Duke of Surrey, the Earl of Wiltshire, and the Earl of Salisbury were against us. They persuaded the Earl of Gloucester to join them. They mean to destroy all of us, including you and me, your father, John Holland, John Bareford, and the Duke of Amal. They mean to reverse the pardon of Earl Thomas of Lancaster, for this would mean the disinheritance of us all. God forbid. It would be a great wonder if the king agreed to that, after promising to be a good lord to us, and even swearing by St Edward the Confessor. He has often sworn, even on the Holy Sacrament, to be a good king to me, but I no longer trust him. We will never be able to trust him again. Certainly not. Even if we succeed in thwarting them now, they will still be intent on destroying us in ten years' time. It's worth noting that Mowbray had grounds for his fears. He'd clearly been a reluctant partner in the destruction of the three senior appellants. It's very probable that when Richard sent orders to Calais for Mowbray to kill his uncle Gloucester, Mowbray had been waiting for a month and had to be ordered again to do the deed. Mowbray hadn't turned up to Parliament on the day when the counter-appellants had done their thing. So he might well have feared that Richard could spot a backslider. And what of the accusation that there'd been a plot to bring down the Lancastrian house in its entirety? Although it's been dismissed by some historians as complete and utter bunkum, it could well be true. In his youth, Richard had roundly detested Gaunt and wanted rid of him. The power of Lancaster was truly scary, and since Richard had made it clear that primogeniture, not the male line, would be taken for his inheritance, and therefore that the Mortimers were in line for the throne, 
there was in Richard's mind at least a temptation for Gaunt to assert his own claim to the throne by violence. Plus, of course, we fear and hate the people we've wronged, and Richard had killed Gaunt's younger brother. Well, Bolingbroke went straight from this conversation and talked to Dad, to John of Gaunt. Gaunt, straight as a die, went to the king and laid it all out in front of him. Clearly king, there could be no truth in any of this hokum. Though since hokum, as a word, comes from the early 20th century American musical slang, he wouldn't have used that word. So, your man, king, is surely guilty of treason. Go do your thing, young man. In fact, he had found the king in a state of advanced paranoia and incipient nuttiness. A rumour was flying around that the head and body of the executed Earl of Arundel had managed to reunite themselves. And the great unwashed were excitedly gathering round his tomb and declaring miracles. Sir Richard forced Gaunt to go down to the church, have the body dug up and have a look at it. He did so. It was smelly, decomposed and in two bits. Mowbray himself panicked when he heard that Gaunt had spilled the beans to Richard. He knew there was a parliament at Shrewsbury in January 1398 and he decided he had to stop the Lancasters reaching it and telling their story in open session. So he arranged an ambush to get rid of Gaunt and Bolingbroke but someone else spilled this particular packet of beans to Gaunt and they escaped. And so to Shrewsbury, in the Great Hall in front of the packed Parliament, Henry told his story. Mowbray was in a funk of the bluest kind and didn't even turn up. Essentially, Henry was accusing him of saying the King himself was involved in a plot to murder Gaunt. And given recent history, Mowbray thought there was a fair chance he'd be executed on the spot without being able to do so much as open his mouth. In February, Richard got the two men together. Henry had been arrested, Mowbray had been stripped of his title of Marshal of England and lost his lands. But Richard tried to reconcile them. Henry, Duke of Hereford, do you, per do you persist in these accusations against your brother, the Duke of Norfolk? My lord, as the petition I have given you makes clear, I declare that Thomas Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk, is a traitor, false and recreant towards you and your royal majesty. Henry of Lancaster, Duke of Hereford, has lied in what he has said and wishes to insinuate against me like a false traitor and disloyal subject that he is. Holes, we have heard enough of this. Both of you shall be arrested and taken to Windsor. A parliamentary commission was appointed to decide what to do with the pair of them. Basically, we're talking, he said, she said. So how was one to decide? So, the Parliamentary Committee decided that maybe God could do the job and they went for trial by combat. It then all got worse and very messy. Henry came out with the accusation that Mowbray had embezzled while Captain of Calais and, shock horror, had murdered the Duke of Gloucester. You don't say. You can see what he's trying to do here, get Mowbray arrested and killed, so that he would be completely off the hook. But here, really, he should have had a bit more nous. After all, Richard had in fact ordered Mowbray to do the deed with Gloucester, so there was now a danger that Mowbray would accuse the king, and then where would it all end? Richard blew up, incandescent with rage. 
Mowbray accused Henry of lying and, oddly enough, Richard didn't press him on the murder question. Surprise, surprise. Really, there was nothing for it. The following day, Richard informed them of his decision. The matter would be resolved by a duel in the autumn. There was really no other way. And I have to say, this was the event of the century, the millennium. I mean, here we have two of the greatest jousters of the day, two of the most powerful, the richest magnates in the land, head to head. Winner takes all, the loser is ruined. I just cannot imagine the cost of the television rights if it was to happen today. Both Mowbray and Bolingbroke checked their kit. Bolingbroke went for Italian armour, Mowbray for German. In September they both turned up at Coventry as ready as they would ever be. The theatre, ladies and gentlemen, the theatre. On the evening of the 15th of September... Bolingbroke went to see the king. On the morning of the 16th at 8, Mowbray did the same. The town was crammed, packed with onlookers, aghast at the size of the stakes on the one hand, fascinated in equal measure. Mowbray was in front of the crowds first, and an hour later Bolingbroke appeared on a white warhorse, draped in a livery of blue and green velvet embroidered with gold swans and antelopes. Henry rode up to the lists to be stopped by the Constable of England, the Duke of Omagh, and the Marshal of England, the Duke of Surrey. They demanded that he show his face and announce himself. He swore he would either kill his opponent or force him to surrender, and his arms for the day were the Cross of St George. With the formalities done into the lists, he rode and waited for his opponent to arrive. Up rode Mowbray, went through the same challenge, cried, God speed the right, spurred his horse into the lists. As the two of them gathered themselves, the king and thousands of people were watching, all agog. I imagine there was more gogging going on since the Feast of Karna. Henry started to charge on his horse and was seven or eight steps down the course, when up stood Richard and cried out for it all to be stopped. What? Talk about anticlimax. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Richard had retired to his pavilion to think, while everyone sat by and fidgeted, waiting for the decision. It surely couldn't be long. After all, the event was hardly a surprise. Richard had had enough warning, you'd have thought. A minute passed. And then another. A further minute passed quickly, followed by another minute when suddenly a different minute passed. They waited a minute while a minute passed quickly. Then a minute, which seemed to last an hour but was only a minute, passed. Now sat in his tent, Richard was going through agonies. 
Probably he'd hoped that he'd be able to effect a reconciliation, but the pair had remained resolutely irreconcilable, and now here they all were, no one backing down. Because, of course, either solution was insufferable as far as Richard was concerned. If Mowbray won well, he'd have publicly ignored the murder of his uncle, and he'd have clearly shafted the popular and seemingly blameless Henry. If Henry won, then everything Richard had worked for, the humbling of the appellants, the recovery of royal authority, all of this would be under threat, because the ever more powerful Lancaster would be ever more powerful. He wanted a draw, and he'd left it to the last minutes to try and get a draw, but a draw was now impossible. So, two hours later, John Boosie appeared and read a proclamation. My Lord, I inform you by honour of the King and Council, blah, 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 that the said Henry of Lancaster should quit the realm for ten years. Well, fancy. Following that, Mowbray was banished for life. Now, John of Gaunt must have been absolutely crushed. His policy of stubborn loyalty had yielded him precisely Zipperuni, and the towering unfairness of it all. The towering unfairness. In most respects, no one could argue with the way Richard had behaved. He'd tried to arbitrate. He'd used the council. As the liege lord, he was perfectly entitled to step in and take the decision into his own hands. But there was one clear piece of injustice and tyranny, there was no justification for banishing Bolingbroke. He wasn't accused of anything. It was clear to all the world that his decision in this respect was simply his desire to get rid of an overmighty subject. Henry went with his father to where Richard was staying, but failed to change his mind. On the 3rd of October, both Bolingbroke and Mowbray addressed the court and said their farewells, and then left the kingdom using different doors. The day before Henry left, it was said that 40,000 people lined the streets of London to see him off. After all, he was the golden child, rich, young, clever, intelligent, brave. And now to cap it all, the victim of an injustice. The lad had it all, and he was only 31. Off he went to Paris, France, and the court of the French king... Mowbray will not rejoin our story. He travelled to Venice, where he died of plague in 1399. Now Richard must have felt agreeably smug in October 1398. He was supreme. The appellants had all been defeated. And then in February 1399, John of Gaunt died. No doubt stressed and embittered at the return he'd received for his loyalty. So that threw all the cards up into the air again. Now, obviously, Richard should allow Henry to inherit his lands in absentia. But then, of course, he would have a man who combined the massive Lancastrian inheritance with Bolingbroke's existing lands as Duke of Hereford. OK, so he wasn't back for another ten years, but that was just delaying the problem, really. And at some point, Bolingbroke would be back, immensely powerful and immensely irritated. Not a good combination for Richard. But there might be a strangely attractive alternative. Bolingbroke, after all, wasn't here. He was in a foreign land, isolated and powerless. The strangely attractive alternative was not to allow the man back at all, 
declare all the lands forfeit forever. OK, so it was patently unjust. But then he'd clearly shafted Bolingbroke unfairly anyway. Bolingbroke was never going to be a Richard fan anymore, whatever happened. And Richard would get his hands on the richest inheritance in England. So a double whammy. On the one hand, lots of lovely patronage for his own foreigners. And on the other, the ending of the Lancastrian power that was so dangerous to an unpopular king. So there was a danger that it could push Henry over the edge into rebellion. But what could he do? He was alone in France and Richard had his Cheshire archers and was anointed by God. So game over, dude. It was all too tempting. And Richard was not a man to resist this kind of temptation. So in March 1399, the banishment on Henry Bolingbroke was extended to forever. At the time, Henry was in Paris, at a borrowed house, the Hotel de Clison. On a personal level, Henry had found a lot of sympathy for his cause. He was well known. His reputation as a great prince went before him and everyone agreed he'd been hard done by. But of course, this is politics. And so he couldn't expect to find a lot of practical help, given that he was a rebel. A good example of this is the case of the French king's uncle, the Duke of Burgundy, who proposed to marry his daughter Mary to Bolingbroke. But then the Earl of Salisbury appeared at court with a message from Richard. Come on, let's be clear, Henry Bolingbroke is a traitor. And before you could say, lock up your daughters, the whole idea was off. So at very best, Bolingbroke might just get a blind eye from the French to do his own thing, but that was as far as he could go. With the benefit of hindsight, the decision Richard now took seems utterly thick, well into two-plank territory and possibly even three-plank. He chose this moment to take his army to Ireland to deal again with Art McMurrah. But from Richard's point of view, Bolingbroke was a busted flush. Without effective help in France, resource or future... The situation was essentially done with. How could Bolingbroke make a difference, even if he had a mind to? No, Richard felt safe enough. He left the Duke of York, the remaining uncle in control as Keeper of the Realm, and sailed for Waterford in Ireland with his army. So let's return to our picture of Henry. He's at the height of his powers. He's admired and respected for his physical prowess and intellectual skills. He also had no men to go back to England with him to claim his inheritance. The very thought of going back would have seemed utterly potty. Surely his only option was to get used to his gilded cage. He still had plenty of cash. Maybe he just needed to get used to the idea of exile. But Henry was made of sterner stuff. In 1399, in fact, he proved that there was substance behind the glamour, a fist in the velvet glove. So he managed to get the blind eye treatment from the French, which enabled him to hire a ship and sail from Boulogne. He had been joined by both of the Arundels, Richard the Earl, Thomas the Archbishop, so there was the nucleus of a small force that left Boulogne and initially at least wandered up and down the channel looking for the best place to land. The Duke of York kept an eye out, realising the possibility of an attack on the south of England, but it's probably unsurprising that in fact... Henry went for Ravenspur in the north, a town on the coast and the River Humber, which has since been eroded away by the sea. 
it's probable that he had about 15 knights and 300 men. So really, it's a pretty desperate exercise that takes some grit. Rebelling against the king is a high-risk strategy for anybody. Henry Bolingbroke had no guarantees that anyone would join him. So he's the golden child, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, all that, no doubt. But as I say, there's some grit there as well. Obviously, Bolingbroke went to the north because that's where the heartlands of the massive Lancastrian lands were. The first question, crucial for his success, was would the traditional Lancastrian affinity join him or not? If they wouldn't, it's difficult to believe anybody else would. And approaching the gates of Pontefract Castle in Yorkshire on the 13th of July 1399 must have been pretty agonising. As it happens, he needn't have worried. At Pontefract, quote, Crowds of gentlemen, knights and esquires from Yorkshire and Lancashire flocked to join him with their retinues. So now Bolingbroke had an army. But even his massive Lancastrian inheritance wouldn't be enough to succeed if he couldn't attract other lords to support him. So Bolingbroke's next step, a meeting with the Perses, was crucial. The Percy family derived from a small Norman knight, William de Percy, at the time of the conquest. The name Percy comes from a Norman village. Over the centuries, the Percys had become the most powerful force in the northeast. Henry Percy had supported Richard. He was the guy in 1388, for example, who had tried to arrest the Earl of Arundel. Henry Percy had been made the first Earl of Northumberland and Warden of the Eastern Marches by Richard. His son, Harry Hotspur, was equally favoured. He had accompanied Richard on his first trip to Ireland. It's constantly used on important diplomatic missions and favoured with land grants. OK, I hear you ask. So the Percys had done well from Richard. So why the Dickens would they help Bolingbroke? You might point out, very reasonably, and indeed with eagle-eyed insight and acuity, that there were tensions between Percy and Lancaster between two such large landholders in the north who on occasion rubbed up against each other. So this perfectly demonstrates the complexity of medieval politics and how hard it was for any king to negotiate a safe path. Richard had supported the Perses, sure. But he'd also supported another local family that will become equally crucial in the century ahead, the Nevilles, it made Ralph Neville a major power in the northwest, and earls of Westmoreland, and a competitor, and a worry for Percy. He'd retained the town of Berwick under royal control. That was a worry for Percy too. Most importantly, Harry Hotspur, Percy's son, was married to Elizabeth Mortimer, aunt of the eight-year-old Edmund Mortimer, the Mortimer claimant to the throne. Now, Richard had threatened to declare Thomas of Lancaster the Lancaster rebel in the time of Edward II, a traitor. That would affect all his descendants and make them all illegitimate, including the Mortimers. So, got that everyone? Jolly complicated. But the long and short is that at Doncaster in South Yorkshire, Henry Percy agreed to support Bolingbroke. More than that, who should ride into town but Ralph Neville? Now he was peeved because he'd just lost the lordship of Richmond to the traditional family of Brittany, the Pontiev. So Bolingbroke had his support. The Perses and Nevilles made Henry swear to a couple of things. 
Firstly, he's only here to get his rightful inheritance. He will make no claim for the throne while Richard is alive and will only make a claim for the throne if there are no candidates with a better claim. So think Mortimer's here. They think they have a better claim than Henry. And in English law, they jolly well do. Secondly, Bolingbroke promised to reform the royal household so that it didn't cost so much and only levy taxes with the assent of Parliament. Which is interesting, since it assumes Bolingbroke's going to be in the position of raising taxes, a pretty royal job, you'd have thought. But hey. And it's worth thinking about what the Nevilles and Perses would have seen in front of them. A man of royal lineage, of personal reputation, exploits and fame. Put that up against the weird, suspicious and paranoid Richard and Bolingbroke looks like a pretty good bet. So, there we go. Bolingbroke has gained very effective control of the North. He's now officially a contender that Duke Edmund of York, with his army in the South, has to deal with and Bolingbroke was ready to go. The Duke of York had sent a messenger to the King on the 4th of July. By the 10th of July, Richard in Ireland had heard the news, which means that those messengers deserve some sort of prize, because that's over 350 miles, including some sea. Snaps for the messengers, everyone. Richard had two main men with him in Ireland, Edward, son of the Duke of York, Keeper of the Realm, who was now created Duke of Omal, and the Earl of Salisbury, John Montague. Now they had a problem. The shipping that had brought the army to Ireland had dispersed. For two weeks they did their best to stick it back together again and after one week Salisbury was sent to North Wales to put an advance guard together and secure Chester in the northwest. But actually Salisbury struggled there to raise an effective army. The Welsh wanted to see Richard before they committed. Meanwhile Bolingbroke moved south to Leicester which he reached on the 20th of July. Finally, by the 24th of July, Richard landed in Wales, but without an army, and two days later his position was critically weak. Bolingbroke had marched south and west, and the Duke of York had also moved. But there hadn't been a fight. And in fact, on the 27th of July, Bolingbroke and York had met at the church just outside Barclay Castle, scene of Edward II's murder. Because York's army had disintegrated in the light of the absence of the king. Plus, York very probably believed that Bolingbroke had been wrongly dispossessed anyway. Plus, he could see with his own eyes how hard it was to win support for Richard's cause. And plus, he strongly suspected that Richard had killed his brother Gloucester back in 1397. So either way, after the chat at Barclay, York certainly didn't stand in Bolingbroke's way and essentially acted in his favour. Richard, meanwhile, was in Glamorgan, but now decided to run northwards for Chester and Salisbury and his faithful Cheshire archers. From there, the English would surely see that their king was alive and rally to his standard. For Bolingbroke and York, Bristol stood between them and the king. Bolingbroke surrounded the castle and demanded of the castellan Peter Courtney that he surrender. But Courtney refused. He had 4,000 English archers inside and his duty was to the king. So, I have had the odd complaint about cliffhangers. Just to make matters worse, I have to tell you I am up against it writing-wise and work-wise, so I can't be sure when the next episode will be. You never know, it could even be next week, or it could be next month. I'm sorry to be so uninformative, but I'm going to have to ask you all to check the website for an update.
It's a shame since, of course, Richard's life and future hangs in the balance. Plus, I haven't forgotten the coin competition. I'll let you know. And thanks for filling out the survey, which is fascinating stuff. Plus, I have some donators to thank, Edward, Jacob and Matthew. So that's it. Thanks to all of you for listening, for all your comments on the History of England website, on iTunes and Facebook. Good luck, everyone, and have a great time period. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 